The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And if you look at where those arms have gone over the course of the last decade, uh, Myanmar, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, and a number of other countries where I think we would have deep foreign policy concerns as well as a number of countries where we find ourselves competing with this uh, defense industrial base that we ourselves have subsidized. Uh, so I think that's another area where we should be really sort of pausing and thinking about how our funding and our assistance ends up working against us. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 28th, 2023. Last month, following Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, President Biden announced that his administration would ask Congress for, quote, an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense, totaling $14.3 billion. Such a package would supplement the defense aid Israel already receives from the U.S. According to Jonathan Geyer and Vox, quote, Israel has received about $3 billion annually, adjusted for inflation, for the last 50 years, and is the largest historical recipient of U.S. security aid. But with civilian casualties in Gaza mounting, including the reported killing of thousands of Palestinian children, likely with weapons of U.S. origin. A recent article in Foreign Affairs by Brian Finucane asks, is Washington responsible for what Israel does with American weapons? To talk through that essay, I sat down with Brian, a senior advisor at the International Crisis Group and former attorney advisor in the office of the legal advisor at the U.S. State Department, as well as Josh Paul, a former director in the State Department's Political Military Affairs Bureau, which oversees U.S. arms transfers, who resigned in protest over the U.S. government's provision of weapons to Israel for use in the conflict in Gaza. We discussed the scale and process of U.S. weapons transfers, the domestic and international law that govern these transfers, and whether the U.S. is complicit and liable for war crimes committed with its weaponry. We also discussed why it would be a mistake to rely solely on the law of war to bring an end to the death and destruction in Gaza. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 28th. U.S. arms transfers to Israel with Brian Finucane and Josh Paul. So, Brian and Josh, before we get into some of the process questions, the legal restrictions, and the like, I wanted to get on the table first the scale and type of of arms that are being sent to Israel from the United States. So, uh, Josh, I wanted to start with you. What is the scale of U.S. arms transfers to Israel, and how do we know? Sure. Thank you very much for the question. So uh, our security assistance to Israel is on an annual basis uh, the greatest to any country in the world, and by security assistance... I mean, grant military assistance. So Israel receives about $3.3 billion in foreign military financing, uh, about $500 million additional each year in Defense Department funding uh, for missile defense development. And that has been going on. We are now in, I believe, year eight or so of the uh, uh, MOU between Israel and the US that established that level. Of course, Israel spends its own money as well. 
so broadly, I would put the uh, arms provided to Israel into two categories. Uh, the first being the sort of the long-term capabilities on which they mostly spend their foreign military financing. So things like the F-35 program, for example. Uh, and, and then in the other category, I'd put some of their more immediate uh, requests. Um, so precision-guided munitions kits, bombs, uh, firearms, that kind of thing. And those are being uh, provided through a variety of means and a variety of funding, including Israeli funding. Yeah, thank you for that. And and Brian, I wonder if I could go to you to sort out some of the definitions here. I think often headlines will use interchangeably military aid, assistance, sales, transfers. Are there meaningful differences in those terms? Thanks for the question. As Josh alluded to, one of the relevant distinctions is whether or not the underlying money being used comes from the U.S. Treasury in the form of a grant, you know, uh, foreign military financing, or is national funds from the buyer itself. And as Josh was referring to, Israel relies on both using national funds and also relying on grant assistance from the U.S. in the, the form of foreign military financing, greater than $3 billion a year. Josh, I want to go back to you for some of uh, how this works in practice. If you could first just give uh, a brief background of, of your former role at the State Department, and then a bit about how this works in practice, as I said, when a, a request comes to the desk of a State Department official, for example, what is being looked at? What, you know, how do the, the weapons actually then get to the Israelis? Uh, at least how should it work in practice? Yeah, so my former role, I was in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which is the Bureau at the State Department responsible uh, for security assistance and arms transfers, and more broadly for defense diplomacy. Uh, within that bureau, I was director. My role there was uh, essentially congressional uh, and public affairs, uh, which has two rele- bits of relevance here. The first was that I was responsible, therefore, for lack of a, for lack of a better word, for lobbying Congress, uh, for for engaging with Congress to gain support. Uh, for the administration's budget requests, uh, including their grant assistance uh, and including to Israel, uh, and uh, congressional support for arms transfers. All major arms transfers above certain thresholds are required to be notified to Congress. Uh, And then related to that, I guess the second relevant capacity here is uh, I was part of the approval process uh, for major arms sales that required notification to Congress. So that, that was my role there in the State Department. In terms of how these are reviewed and considered. So again, it depends, first of all, if you're talking about the grant military assistance or the arms sales, arms transfers themselves. For the grant military assistance, Israel is an interesting case because for most countries, uh, when we receive an appropriation from Congress that can be used for military assistance, we go through a process with the partner country of, uh, you know, talking with them about how they would like to use it. Uh, We notify it to Congress. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we have a, typically a back and forth with the Hill about what the intent is. When it comes to Israel, those funds are considered obligated upon appropriation, uh, which means essentially that within 30 days of the act passing, they are put into the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They are Israel's to use. There is a parallel discussion, the joint political military working group that happens at senior levels uh, with Israel to help them flesh out exactly how they intend to spend the funds. But essentially, it's, it's theirs to spend uh, pretty much immediately. On the sales side uh, or transfers side, every case, whether it is through the government-to-government foreign military sales process or the direct commercial sales licensing process, uh, theoretically goes through a review in which all stakeholders uh, within the department and beyond uh, will take a look at the case and assess whether it re- meets the requirements under the conventional arms transfer policy, whether it meets the requirements under law, 
and to review for their equities. So, for example, the Bureau of Democracy, Rights and Labour will review for human rights concerns. Uh, the uh, regional bureau, uh, let's say in the case of Israel, that would be the Bureau of Near East Affairs, will review for regional balance and regional concerns. Uh, and so there will be this this typically involved process of everyone laying out their, their stakes and their uh, perspectives to try and get things into the right place. Yeah. And, and Brian, I want to go back to you to drill down on some of those legal and policy uh, requirements. And you recently ha- wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs titled, Is Washington Responsible for What Israel Does with American Weapons? And in it, you lay out several uh, layers of requirements in terms of uh, what should happen before uh, the the transfers are actually approved. I wonder if you could walk us through some of those. So you laid out a few, one that Josh just mentioned, the Arms Export Control Act. There's also the Leahy Law. There was a Biden administration policy, the conventional arms transfer policy back in February of last year, and then their State Department guidance. Could you sort of map out some of those considerations that have to be taken uh, before a, a transfer is approved? Sure. I'll, I'll talk about both some of the legal considerations relevant to arms transfers, but also I think there's another piece of this discussion relevant to, to Israel or potentially relevant to Israel, which is intelligence sharing, which we haven't touched on, which raises its own issues. So on the arms transfer front, the framework law governs U.S arms transfers is the Arms Export Control Act. And Section 4 of the Arms Export Control Act sets out an exhaustive list of purposes for which arms would be transferred. And the relevant one here would be legitimate self-defense, which is a term of art, but is undefined in the law itself. Over the years, it has been both interpreted in terms of use ad bellum, that is to say, uh, whether the resort to force itself is lawful, uh, but also in terms of use in bellow, that is to say, whether U.S. arms uh, would be used in compliance with the law of war. And so, for example, in the case of Israel, this became an issue back in the 1980s when there were concerns raised, including on Capitol Hill, about the use of uh, cluster munitions by Israel in southern Lebanon and whether um, they were being used to target civilians. So that, that's the Arms Export Control Act. The, the CAT policy, the Conventional Arms Transfer Policy, there's a new policy announced in early this year, February, by the Biden administration. And there's a, a number of notable elements to it, but I think that the, really the key one that a lot of people focused on when it was unveiled is that the, the new Biden administration conventional arms transfer policy prohibits arms transfer if, quote, is more likely than not that the arms will be to be transferred will be used by the recipient to commit a list of you know, prohibited actions, including uh, attacks intentionally targeted against civilian objects or civilians protected as such, or other serious violations of international humanitarian law or human rights law. So that's, that's the standard laid out in the CAT policy. And, and the policy also specifies that the United States will engage in appropriate monitoring as part of its efforts to ensure uh, transferred arms are used responsibly. So that, that contemplates that there will be a monitoring of the use of U.S. weapons. Uh, there was also announced, or at least written about by Missy Ryan in the Washington Post back in August, that the Department of State has established a new program for monitoring civilian harm caused by U.S. weapons and had requested that all embassies uh, coordinate and collect information on civilian harm uh, as a result of U.S. origin weapons. Some of the other legal, potentially legally relevant considerations would be the U.S. War Crimes Act, which prohibits domestically prohibits uh, a number of listed war crimes and conspiracy to commit said war crimes. And then certainly back to intelligence sharing, it's, it's not publicly 
known whether and to what degree the U.S. is sharing actual intelligence with Israel in the Gaza conflict. Uh, there's been conflicting public reports on that front. Uh, but one potentially relevant consideration on, regarding intelligence sharing is the assassination ban in Executive Order 12333. And this prohibits uh, U.S. executive branch personnel from engaging in or conspiring to engage in assassination and also bars indirect participation in assassination. Um, and this is understood to, for the purposes of the law of war, to constitute killings that would violate the law of war. So the assassinations would be um, killings in violation of the law of war. And this prohibition is potentially relevant when the U.S. is sharing intelligence with foreign partners, um, if that intelligence is used to target civilians, for example. Yeah, thanks for that. And Josh, I want to go back to you. So Brian did a great job laying out the different considerations and equities at play. You began to to touch on this, but how, what does this deliberation look like in practice, um, especially at a time when a war has broken out? So post October 7th, for example. So it's it's typically a very involved process. And before we talk about Israel specifically, I mean, let's let's just step back. And, you know, in the context of any conflict, and including in the context of Ukraine for the last almost two years now, you know, there has been a, a very involved, very detailed set of uh, considerations and debates, really on a case-by-case basis. And that's what the process considers and, and is set up to do. Uh, so whatever you are transferring, anytime you are transferring a defense article or service to a partner, uh, we go through this process of, you know, the partner comes in, or if it's an export license, the U.S. company uh, or manufacturer or exporter comes in with their proposal, and it goes through a, a number of levels. The de- Defense Department will look specifically uh, at questions of military capability, uh, of absorptive capability for the partner, of uh, U.S. technological risk that may be presented by the transfer. The country team at the embassy uh, will will typically weigh in, uh, particularly on foreign military sales cases, and say, you know, is this something that they endorse? Can the country, again, absorb it? How will they use it, etc.? Uh, within the State Department, there are multiple offices that will take a look. And so, again, even, even in the context of, you know, a country outside of, of Israel, and again, using the Ukraine example, for each capability, will this, you know, contribute to the, the war aims? Will this be used appropriately? Uh, where will this be used? How will this be used? Is there a risk of civilian harm? Uh, is there an escalatory risk, et cetera, et cetera? And the same should be the case theoretically, right, when it comes to Israel. And and theoretically is the case in that uh, when an arms transfer comes through for review, assuming one does, which is, is not always the case now, given the mechanisms that we're using to transfer arms to Israel. So, for example, when Israel draws from the war reserve stockpile in Israel, it does not need to come into the State Department for an authorization, uh, as it would if it were going through the foreign military sales or direct commercial sales process. But for those cases that do come through, theoretically, the process is still there. Everyone gets the chance to weigh in. Uh, The problem is in this context that they are being told, and here is your answer, uh, and you will respond within the next two hours, and let's move forward. For the most part, there are a couple of exemptions or exceptions that have developed over the last few months, but we can talk about those separately. Yeah, and I think one theme that I think comes up pretty clearly when when reading about uh, the Israel case specifically is this perhaps Israel exemption whether spoken or unspoken, that exists with all of these restrictions. On paper, the restrictions themselves seem fairly robust, I think, for someone who may be concerned with civilian casualties um, as a result of weapons that are transferred. But I think in in Israel's case, there seems to be 
an exemption, as I mentioned. Brian, one of your colleagues, uh, Sarah Harrison, tweeted recently that, quote, when I was at DOD advising on the Leahy laws and complained about this to a senior official, they said to me, quote, it's Israel, Sarah, as if that's all that needed to be said. So, Brian, I wonder if you could touch on this gap between policy and law and what actually occurs in practice when transferring arms to Israel. Well, I've certainly heard that anecdotally, including from Sarah, but I I might um, hand this one off to to Josh as he's commented on this at at length, um, including since his departure uh, from the State Department. I think he may have a little more granular um, grasp of the issue than than I do, at least least more current. Sure. I mean, I mean, what I'll say at the start, right, is that I don't think anyone is proposing that there be a special standard for Israel in terms of how we apply the law. I think what we're saying and what everyone is saying is that there should be the same common standard across the globe when it comes to US arming of partners. And that's what we're not seeing in this context. So I think Sarah's comment was right, uh, that there tends to be an approach of, well, it's Israel, let's just move this as quickly as we can. There are no problems here. And I think there are times when when concerns have been raised. And I think this is particularly the case when we look at, for example, the West Bank uh, and, you know, whether arms we are providing to certain units uh, are units that are of concern that have a track record, for example, of extrajudicial killings, of torture, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, that have been raised in the context of the munitions review by entities, including the Human Rights Bureau uh, or DRL, as we call it inside the State Department, particularly since October 7th, but even before there has always been a, a rush to to sort of approve these cases and, you know, a lack of understanding of why anyone would raise these concerns. I think that's true not only within the administration. I think it's true within Congress as well, where, you know, Congress has frequently stood up for questions of human rights. Uh, as Brian will recall from his time in the State Department when we worked together, um, you know, Congress was very forceful when it came to human rights in the context of the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. Uh, but in the case of Israel, Congress frequently reaches out to say, why haven't you moved faster, uh, even if there are concerns that have been raised by, for example, human rights NGOs uh, about potential end uses of the weapons that we are transferring. So I think there is, and we can talk about what the causes of that are. I think there are several. I think people at lower levels are, are concerned to speak out you know, on a career basis. I think that people at more senior levels uh, are also uh, concerned, but from a different perspective, uh, again, this comes back to Congress, where I think it is very hard for, uh, you know, people who think that they are going to go in front of committees for nomination hearings, for confirmation hearings, uh, you know, who feel that it can be a career killer uh, to to be critical of Israel. And I think they're quite often right. Brian, I'm curious if you have any of your own theories to add for this apparent, you know, uneven application of standards when it comes to Israel uh, in terms of weapons. Yeah, I will just note that there is currently a, a debate on, on Capitol Hill about whether there should be conditions imposed on further military assistance to Israel for the use in this conflict that often seems to gloss over the fact that under U.S. law and policy, there are already conditions on all um, you know arms transfers and military assistance. The question is just whether or not those conditions have any teeth in practice. And you know, as Josh has just laid out, there are a number of reasons why those um, you know conditions that already exist are often not applied in the case of Israel. Yeah, and speaking of which, Josh, I was interested to learn in your uh, recent New York Times op-ed of the Israel Leahy Vetting Forum. Could you speak a bit about that and whether or not the forum ever finds human rights violations committed on on the side of uh, the Israeli Defense Forces? Sure. So the Leahy vetting, for those who aren't familiar, is the requirement under law that for any U.S. military grant assistance, or at least that's the way the executive reads it, uh, for any military grant assistance, um, it cannot be provided to a unit or a person 
where there is where there has been a gross violation of human rights. So Leahy vetting typically around the world occurs in the way that before we provide equipment to a unit or training to a unit or to a person, that unit or person are go through a vetting process where they are you know essentially checked uh, against uh, public reporting, against intelligence databases to confirm that they have not been involved in any gross violations of human rights. Uh, in the case of Israel and a couple of other partners, because the scope of our assistance is so broad that it essentially could be going to any part of the Israeli Defense Forces or Israeli Security Forces, it is considered that that would be too resource intensive, and and that's fair to some extent, uh, to to essentially vet the entire uh, you know Israeli security apparatus for gross violations of human rights. So there's been something set up for the last couple of years called the Israel Lehi Vetting Forum, and the theory of the case here is that. Uh, we will provide the assistance, right? And so instead of vetting, then providing, we will provide, then we will vet. And the way that vetting is done is essentially the department keeps its ears open for any reports of gross violations of human rights. Uh, and those are fed into a forum, uh, which involves several bureaus with equities, as well as Embassy Jerusalem, to look at and to say, okay, is this potentially a credible violation, gross violation of human rights? If it is, uh, and again, this is a, a approach that is almost unique to Israel, the next step is to put the case to the Israelis and say, hey, have you heard of this? Are you doing anything about it? Uh, are you, for example, you know, prosecuting anyone for this potential violation? Israel then comes back, typically saying uh, something along the lines of either it didn't happen or it didn't happen like that, or yes, and we're going to give a very severe smack on the wrist to whoever was involved. And, and then the department has to make a final decision about whether or not a gross violation of human rights occurred. To date, under this process, the department has never concluded that a gross violation of human rights occurred, uh, despite what I would say is incredibly credible and convincing evidence to the contrary. Uh, and that, of course, is because you have a number of stakeholders involved, all of whom have to concur that it happened, as opposed, again, to the regular vetting process where anyone can throw a red flag and that is sufficient to stop the assistance. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And Brian, in your foreign affairs piece, you lay out a few areas that the Biden administration at least should be taking, uh, including Leahy vetting, whether through the approval of arms transfers, through the monitoring of uh, arms that are already out in the world, and then uh, in public reporting as to what has been transferred. Um, so what else, in addition to Leahy vetting, should is the Biden administration and the government uh, legally bound to do already? A- and what what more could be done? Right. Just to take a step back, I, I want to comment for a moment about 
some of the legal standards that are actually applicable to the ongoing conflict in Gaza and then how those relate to what the what steps that the Biden administration should be taking. So, you know, there's as everyone knows, there's a, there is a intense and brutal war underway in Gaza. Right now there's a, a humanitarian pause, hopefully to be extended. Uh, but since since October 7th there's been a, you know, intense conflict in Gaza um, between Hamas on the one hand and the Israeli military on the other, governed by the law of war which amongst other things uh, regulates the conduct of hostilities. So your audience may be familiar that, you know, under the law of war, only military objectives, including combatants may be targeted. You know, civilians may not be targeted. Um, there are prohibitions on indiscriminate attacks, prohibitions on attacks which are would cause, expected to cause excessive harm to civilians in relation to the anticipated military advantage, requirements for the belligerents to take uh, precautions um, to minimize harm to civilians. And so, that those are the standards against which the United States should be holding Israel in the use of U.S. origin weapons, and the, therefore that the Biden administration should be monitoring how uh, U.S. origin weapons are being used in that conflict and whether or not they are being used consistent with the law of war. Um, and it should be undertaking such monitoring because you know it's, it's part of its policy under the, the CAT policy, um, but also because it's. This would seem to be legally necessary, or at least constitute legal due diligence under some of the other domestic standards I, I laid out earlier, um, as well as a matter of international law. As a matter of international law, if an individual provides support to another party that is used to commit law of war violations, commit war crimes, and the person providing that support is, it knows that the support will be used to commit war crimes, um, then the person providing support could potentially be complicit or be liable as an aider or a better of war crimes. And so U.S. officials, uh, just as a matter of due diligence, have an interest in ensuring that they are not assisting in the commission of war crimes. And that, that would implicate State Department personnel um, who are you know, approving arms transfers. And so for those reasons, um, as a matter of legal due diligence, the, the State Department in particular should be monitoring how U.S. arms are being used in any conflict, um, but particularly in, in a situation in which there have been uh, red flags raised about potential law of war violations. And so in the first instance, you know, monitoring, track, you know, law of war compliance, but then factor, you know, those assessments about uh, law compliance into subsequent decisions on the continuation of arms transfers or whether to approve uh, future arms transfers. Yeah, thank you for that. It's a good reminder of what these weapons are being used for, and and especially in the current conflict in Gaza, when there's credible evidence uh, that you know quite a large number of civilians, many of them children, are being killed, uh, likely with you know U.S. origin weapons. Josh, I want to go back to you. You've you've written at length and spoken at length about um, the reasons behind your resignation, and and I won't you know make you rehash them here, but I'm curious if you have a sense of whether a similar sentiment to yours is is building um, within the State Department, uh, where there's perhaps less of an appetite to continue sending arms uh, to quote uh, Secretary Austin at at the speed of war to Israel, uh, while circumventing some of these you know human rights related restrictions and considerations. Um, do you have a sense of 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 the feeling uh, within the State Department and some of your your former colleagues? Yes. Yeah, so uh, before I go to that, let me also, as a as a bridge to that, just touch on what Brian was previously saying about international law, because, you know, I think what we've seen in the past, uh, you know, for example, in the context, again, of the Saudi-led coalition uh, conflict in Yemen, was the development of, of what I would call the Italian vacation standard, right? 
which, and by that I mean, people would say, uh, you know, back in that context, you know, I am concerned about international law, the application of international law, and the potential for charges being brought at the brought at the International Criminal Court. And I want to go to Italy for my vacation without the risk of being arrested, you know, without the risk of someone knocking on my door and hauling me off uh, to to the International Criminal Court. And I understand that the same concerns are being raised in this context by, you know, individuals who are part of the arms transfer review process and who have put the question in the last couple of weeks to the Office of the Legal Advisor, uh, where Brian used to work, in terms of am I at risk uh, of, of being implicated in this sort of international crime, uh, war crime. And I think that's important. I think what it leads to, first of all, is, is that you see increasingly decisions being elevated so that rather than decisions being made about arms transfers at the level they normally would be, which can be pretty low levels, particularly for cases below notification threshold, they are elevated to more senior officials. Uh, and this sort of raises the profile of the concerns, uh, as well as lessening uh, the, the risks for the lower level officials of, of you know, this kind of exposure, legal exposure. Uh, and I think that speaks to your, your question here, right? The fact that people are asking these questions suggests that people are very aware of the the risks of the lack of accountability and of their potential exposure uh, in legal terms for what is being decided here. Uh, you know, not so much in terms of domestic law. I think it's very, very difficult, and we've seen this repeatedly in courts, to demonstrate uh, or to overcome essentially the presidential prerogative on foreign policy and defense policy decision making. But but there is a significant concern uh, on on the sort of international law. There's also a significant concern uh, I would say, on a policy basis, that our support for Israel is uh, weakening our relationships across the Middle East, uh, weakening our standing across the global south uh, and and sort of, you know, uh, developing world. And then, of course, there is a, a plain moral basis that would exist with or without uh, international law in that people do not join government to, uh, you know, facilitate war crimes. People do not join government to contribute to the deaths of thousands of children. And so I have heard from many hundreds at this point of individuals from across the U.S. government uh, who, who do share these concerns very deeply and, and are very finding what is happening very problematic. So uh, I'm curious for, for those who are concerned and, and, as you mentioned, you know, don't, don't want to be complicit in or, or implicated in legally potential alleged war crimes. What mechanisms are there within state or, or outside to curb this process or to you know, urge the government to impose the same standard on Israeli arms transfers. Uh, Brian, I can go to you first, but I, I'd be curious your your take as well, Josh. Well, I think it, it touches on a complication re- regarding the role of lawyers in, in the U.S. executive branch um, and here the State Department, because they are lawyers first and foremost for the agency or department. You know, the, the Office of Legal Advisor is the General Counsel's Office the Department of State. And so the lawyers there are not the private counsel of any individual uh, employee or official, um, and it's not their role to be providing um, individual legal advice. And so that may put individual uh, decision makers, officials in a, in a difficult position because they, uh, they're turning to office legal advisor for legal advice, but the, the client ultimately is, is the State Department, not, not the individual official. So in terms of, you know, ways to raise these concerns or potentially mitigate risks. You know, I think we've heard, uh, seen quite a bit of uh, public reporting about multiple descent channel cables uh, going up to the Secretary of State, raising concerns about uh, U.S. policy in Gaza. You know, ultimately, 
the the way to mitigate risks here are, you know overlap with the tools to bring about a you know into the violence in, in Gaza at large, which are you know extending out the current humanitarian pause. Um, that makes sense both in terms of risk mitigation for you know any potential you know, law of war violations, uh, but more importantly, you know it's necessary to um, stop the killing. Uh, it's necessary to get in you know needed humanitarian assistance into into Gaza. And it's necessary to keep the, you know, what is a conflict in, in Gaza from further escalating throughout the, the broader region. We saw reports overnight of U.S. naval vessel in the Red Sea being um, targeted by you know, the Houthis with ballistic missiles. We've seen a real uptick in attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, coinciding with the, the conflict in, in Gaza. And we've you've seen an um, increase in fighting between Hezbollah and Israel um, and the, and the Israel's northern border. And so we have a, a steadily escalating regional conflict tied to what's going on in, you know, in Gaza. And the only way to dial all of that back is for you know, an enduring ceasefire in, in Gaza and a cessation in the, in the fighting there. And Josh, did you have anything to add on that initial question? Yeah, I think there are there are I think four different ways, right, that serving officials can can dissent uh, or make their disagreement with policy clear. Uh, unofficial, uh, official, dissent channel, and public. So unofficial, you know, people I'm, I'm sure they are are talking to their supervisors, are talking to you know senior leaders, and saying, "Hey, I have a problem with this. I think we should be doing something different." And that sort of conversation, I, I think, is probably going on. Uh, official. Uh, so when these arms sales come around for review. Uh, you don't have to say, okay, you don't have to approve. Uh, you can make your office's position, uh, if you're in a director role, to say, do not approve, uh, or, uh, you know, take me off this. I don't want to be a part of this. You know, remove my name from the clearance sheet, uh, because all of these papers go around in paper form with a, a clearance page, uh, which lists who is, who is taking what position. There is as well, of course, as, as Brian noted, the dissent channel. And I understand that that has been used significantly in the last couple of months. And this is a protected channel for, you know, officials to voice their disagreement with policy. I think the problem with it is, you know, it, it's establishment dates back to the Nixon administration uh, in the context of uh, uh, Bangladesh, actually. And it essentially has, has not been a very effective means of changing policy. It's an effective means of signaling dissent. Uh, and over time, it can change policy, but it's not a very, you know, once the policy has been sent, a dissent channel cable, uh, in my recollection, has never changed the policy. And that's where you get to the fourth element, right, which is public dissent. Uh, and that's something that I approached through resignation. It's something that others have approached. You may have seen reporting of a public letter uh, from several hundred administration officials to President Biden. Uh, so I think those are the means through which, uh, you know, officials can or do dissent within within government. Thank you for that. And I'm curious, you know, I, I recently read uh, in The Intercept, you were quoted, Josh, in a, an article from Ken Klippenstein about uh, a recent Biden administration effort to further remove restrictions on some categories of weapons and ammunition to Israel, including uh, the War Reserve Stockpile Allies Israel, or WRSAI. Uh, I'm curious if you could just uh, elaborate on, on what that stockpile is, what restrictions are placed on that stockpile that the Biden administration would like to remove and then what I'm what I'm really curious about is is sort of these other knock on effects that come from continued security assistance to Israel. Um, in addition, of course, to the moral and legal implications that we've been talking about in in terms of um, you know contributing to civilian deaths, including many children. Uh, but what other knock on effects are there to to U.S. national security, to Israeli security, to you know U.S. military readiness? You mentioned a few things in both your op ed and this intercept article. Um, so 
Over to you, Josh. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the War Reserve Stockpile Ammunition-Israel, or WASAI, uh, is a U.S. military stockpile that is theoretically, uh, you know, that is located in Israel, that is theoretically for the use of the U.S. military in the case of regional contingencies. Uh, it is one of two or three stockpiles that we have uh, similarly around the world. But of course, it is set up in a way where Israel is permitted to draw from it uh, if the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense, certifies that there is a need for them to do so. And the way Warsaw I has typically uh, been been stocked uh, is that it is with U.S. defense items, for the most part, that are nearing the end of their service life and that are compatible, uh, interoperable with Israeli systems. So what President Biden is suggesting, and he's doing so in the context of his emergency supplemental funding request to Congress, uh, which is currently pending. Uh, the House has passed the Israel part of it only. Uh, the Senate is looking at a, a the full package, which includes funding for Ukraine, Taiwan, U.S. border security and Israel. Um, so we'll see what actually moves forward. Uh, but what he's proposing in, in there is a couple of things. First of all, it is that the equipment that we put into war reserve stockpiles uh, and into Warsaw I is, is not just stuff approaching the end of its service life or that is excess, but we can put essentially brand new things into Warsaw uh, that Israel could immediately pull from uh, with no or with limited notification to Congress. Uh, so rather than, you know, some number of days in advance, it's an immediate, you know, hey, we're doing this. And in addition, uh, that that stockpile can be refreshed. Uh, so the current law puts a cap, I believe it's about $200 million in terms of how how much you can put back into Warsaw each year. Uh, this would remove that cap. So essentially, it becomes an open pipeline where the US can throw in, uh, you know, new munitions, Israel can pull as many of them out as it wants, and you can keep going. And none of this has to go through the regular foreign military sales, or direct commercial sales process, which includes the notifications to Congress. Uh, so that that's the proposal that's on the table. Um, and I think, you know, should be should be quite concerning to those concerned, not only about what is happening in Gaza, but also about the precedent it sends, sets for oversight, uh, particularly by Congress, but also by the American people uh, in terms of, of what is doing, what is being provided. And of course, this comes into, you know, the bigger question of implications. There are also implications there for U.S. military readiness, right? Uh, because, of course, these are U.S. stockpiles. These are equipment coming out of DOD stocks. And the DOD has very deep stocks, but but not lim- unlimited, not infinite. And those are already being stretched by our military support, which I, I think is right uh, in the context of Ukraine, but are being stretched uh, by our military support to Ukraine. You know, I think it's a deeper problem with Israel because Israel's capabilities are much more advanced than those of Ukraine. And the sort of equipment and weapons that we would be providing to Israel uh, would be coming out sort of from more from the high-tech side of things, in addition to you know, the regular 155 millimeter shells, but also some some pretty complex and, and high-end technology. And you know, again, this is expensive stuff. This is finite supply for the US military. So I think readiness is one concern here. I, I think another concern we have to think about in the context of the supplemental request, um, and more generally, our assistance, uh, military assistance to Israel, is something called offshore procurement. And this is uh, within the foreign military financing program right now israel is allowed to spend about 20 percent of its grant military assistance uh, within israel uh, on the israeli defense industrial base the president's request which includes 3.5 billion in foreign military financing for israel would allow them to spend all of that amount uh, within israel the reason that that should be concerning is that you know israel israel's defense industrial base is actually now a top 10 exporter of arms and if you look at where those arms have gone over the course of the last decade uh, myanmar uh, azerbaijan uh, and a number of other countries where I think we would have deep foreign policy concerns 
as well as a number of countries where we find ourselves competing with this uh, defense industrial base that we ourselves have subsidized. Uh, so I think that's another area where we should be really sort of pausing and thinking about how our funding and our assistance ends up working against us. And Josh, I want to stick with you again for uh, just another beat. You 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 titled your your New York Times op-ed, or rather, the paper probably titled it this. I know that authors often don't have control over that, but the title was "I knew U.S. military aid would kill civilians and undermine Israeli security, so I quit." I want to unpack that second part there of of how you know continued flow of arms might counterintuitively actually undermine Israeli security. Yeah, so I think, you know, Oslo was a, the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians back in 1995 were were based on the premise of land for peace. And since then, we have moved into this paradigm. And that that was land, you know, the Israelis will give land, the Palestinians will give peace. You know, the US part of that paradigm since essentially Oslo has been security for peace, where we will ensure Israel's security, and that will enable them to make the steps, make the concessions necessary to achieve peace. And the problem is that what's actually happened is, is not that, but rather that we, the, the security blanket of U.S. military assistance, of U.S., I don't want to say security guarantees because they aren't hard guarantees, but they are certainly implied guarantees of security, uh, have enabled Israel to feel comfortable expanding the settlement enterprise in the West Bank, uh, building the, the separation barrier, uh, you know, that cuts off, in some cases, Palestinian farmers from their fields, etc., uh, continuing the siege of Gaza. Uh, and, and feeling that it can do all of these things and essentially contain uh, the Palestinian national aspiration because of the security it receives from the US. And so in that sense, as well as, of course, by not applying things like Leahy vetting adequately or appropriately, uh, or these you know, conventional arms transfer policy, and, and therefore contributing as well to a growth of a sense of impunity uh, amongst both Israeli forces and, for example, settler militias, what we have done with our security assistance has not provided Israel with the sense, with the security that actual peace, uh, actual peace agreements would have provided it with. And that's, I think, in part why we find ourselves where we do now. If I could touch on that as well, you know, I think it's, it's useful to put U.S. security assistance to its arms transfers um, to Israel, you know, post the atrocities of October 7th, you know, in a broader context of, you know, the U.S. Uh, has warned Israel repeatedly against Repeating the mistakes the United States itself made after the 9/11 attacks in the, you know, in the two decades of, of subsequent wars that the U.S. waged, and one of the things that the administration officials have emphasized to Israel publicly and presumably private as well is, you know, think about the end game, think two moves ahead. You know, what are the, going to be the consequences of your actions? But it, it, in terms of Israel's military campaign in Gaza, it doesn't appear that the Israeli government has heeded those admonitions. It's, you know, it's not at all clear whether Israel will be able to accomplish its stated military objectives, which are, you know, destruction of Hamas's military capability and the end of its governance in Gaza. But even if it is, it doesn't, it's not articulated a clear vision of what comes next. And the U.S. is backing this military campaign uh, with no clear endgame on either the part of Israel or the part of the United States. And in the meanwhile, you know, thousands of people are being killed. The latest estimates I've seen are more than 14,000 people having been killed in Gaza, the majority of those civilians. Mass destruction in, in Gaza itself, tens of thousands of structures uh, damaged or destroyed. Uh, humanitarian catastrophe there. And you know, this is all fueling escalating um, violence throughout the region. Again, you know, missiles being fired from Yemen, attacks on U.S. forces in, in Syria and in Iraq, and, and the fighting with Hezbollah between in, in Israel and in the north. And so 
by backing this military campaign to the hilt, including through further military assistance and further arms transfers, you know, the U.S. is pouring further gasoline on, on the fire in this region. Yeah, it's a great reminder, Brian, and actually a great setup for a point that I wanted to, 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 to bring up toward the end of our conversation, which is this dynamic of perhaps mistaking the forest for the trees with regard to, to law. So the ICC prosecutor Kareem Khan recently wrote in The Guardian, uh, we are witnessing a pandemic of inhumanity to halt the spread. We must cling to the law. Uh, but I, I sort of put that in conversation with something you wrote, Brian, and sorry, you actually were quoted in the Washington Post that's in saying, even if there's a legal justification for each and every strike in Gaza, this conflict has been catastrophic for the people of Gaza, something you were just mentioning, and falling within the law only gets you so far. So I'm wondering, Brian, if you could just expand on this idea of, of clinging to the law, maybe not being enough here. Right. Well, I think just you know, take a step back and think about the, the law of war and its origin. The law of war is a set of rules agreed to by states, both in the form of treaties and in the form of customary international law. And it reflects a balance between humanitarian considerations and military necessity. And as a result, the law of war permits lawful death and destruction on a grand scale. Um, and so even if each and every uh, uh, airstrike, and I think you know, I've seen estimates that Israel is conducting 15,000 strikes or something in, in the course of this conflict since October 7th, even if it were the case that each and every one of those were, was targeting a lawful military objective, and each and every one of those you know, did not cause excessive harm for civilians, which is a very big if, it would still be, you know, they could be perfectly lawful and still would be immensely devastating to, to the people of um, Gaza. And and the other part of this is that while it's absolutely crucial that the U.S. pay attention and monitor how U.S. weapons are, are being used, the realities are that many of the legal inquiries here, the legal analysis and the conduct hostilities are extremely fact-intensive um, and it's often difficult to access all relevant information from the outside. Um, and so for those, those two reasons, both the, you know, the nature of the law of war, the fact that it permits this you know, lawful destruction, but also the difficulties in you know, fully analyzing law of war compliance in real time with a you know, high tempo conflict of this nature, you know, the law is not going to be, be the answer here. It is absolutely necessary um, that the U.S. monitor and, and enforce you know, conditions on the transfer of U.S. arms, but it is by no means sufficient. And if I can just add two quick points to what Brian was saying there, right? I mean, he noted the report of, you know, about 15,000 strikes on Gaza. Of course, Gaza is a territory that is about twice the size of Washington, D.C., just a bit bigger than the metropolitan area of Las Vegas. So 15,000 strikes uh, on that sort of territory is just astounding to me from a policy perspective, let alone a legal one. Uh, second of all, of course, you know, the question is, Gaza is also, as is the West Bank, under Israeli occupation, uh, and and you know we can have a discussion about what occupation actually means in the Gaza context. I think it's very clear in the West Bank context. But to what extent does Israel have the responsibility to actually protect right the civilian population it is occupying? I, I think is a further question here. No, it's a great point. I wanted to also throw out a forward-looking question here. I think as this conversation is an indication, as the many headlines are, Josh, as your public resignation is an indication, is that U.S. arms transfer policy is coming under scrutiny in a way that perhaps it, it hasn't before. I know there have been recent past cases in terms of arms to uh, Saudi Arabia, for example. But what do you hope to see moving forward in terms of long-term or more enduring reform or change to U.S. arms transfer policy. And Brian, I can go to you first. And, and Josh, I'd love uh, for you to take up the question afterwards as well. So I think there have been a number of proposals over the years 
um, to overhaul the Arms Export Control Act. One uh, particular proposal that's been introduced in recent Congresses in both the House and the Senate would, quote unquote, flip the script. That is require affirmative congressional authorization um, for categories of arms transfers to certain countries. You know, that would be a, a good step, a good, you know, structural overhaul of the Arms Export Control Act. The, the problem comes in, in in this context when uh, emotions are understandably so high that if Congress were given the opportunity, it may well, you know, authorize uh, transfers, even if they were to be used in ways that would violate the, the law of war. So ultimately, um, the, the check on transfers to uh, of arms uh, that might be used in violation of the law of war, the ultimate check there is political. Yeah, I, I think Brian is right. I mean, I think the answer here is is common standards. And I think also closing some of these gaps in the statutory framework. So Brian, for example, referenced um, that the transfer of arms is permitted under US law for self-defense or for legitimate self-defense. Uh, there's no, de- as he noted, there's no definition of that. So, you know, let's define what that actually is in the law. Uh, similarly, gross violation of human rights under Leahy. Uh, there is a definition of gross violation of human rights under a different section of law, uh, section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act. There is not one uh, that applies to what constitutes a gross violation of human rights under Leahy. So let's put a definition in there. And, and really the big gap I would point to as well is that the law repeatedly states that U.S. provided U.S. arms shall only be used by partners for the purposes for which they were furnished or for the purposes for which they were provided. And that's the section of statute that under, underlines uh, something that we haven't really talked about uh, so far, which is end-use monitoring. And the problem here is that, you know, I would argue that human rights violations are a purpose for which U.S. arms are never provided. And yet the way the executive branch interprets the law is essentially to limit that interpretation simply to illicit retransfer or to re-engineering and reverse engineering. Uh, so again, closing that statutory gap, I think, would be very helpful. Uh, and there's also a proposal that has been floated to take the conventional arms transfer policy with its prohibition, its outright prohibition, on the transfer of arms where it is more likely than not they'll be used to cause human rights violations or aggravate the risks of human rights violations, and to put that into statute. Uh, and that would make that that mandate, you know, not simply a policy one that can be overridden, but a statutory one that cannot. So I think there are a number of things that can be done to strengthen U.S. law on arms transfers writ large. And I think those will have benefits beyond simply the Israel case, but to our, our overall provision of arms to partners who have problematic human rights records. And before we close here, I wanted to just open the floor to both of you for a final word. Uh, if there's anything that you know you wish I had asked or, or talked about, Brian, we can start with you. No, I mean I think that you know this discussion of, of the law is incredibly important, and I'm glad that we had this conversation today. Uh, I just want to reiterate that, again that the, the following the law and ensuring that U.S. weapons are not being used um, to violate the law of war is critical. But it's not sufficient. And the, the administration really needs to push to extend uh, the current humanitarian pause, extend that further, and to work towards a durable cessation of hostilities in, in Gaza. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with Brian and, and don't really have anything to add except to say that, look, I mean, the U.S. is, is such a powerful country, is involved and implicated in so many problems and conflicts and solutions around the world that we really need to think carefully each time we act. And and I just worry that that level of care and concern uh, is not being brought to bear in the way that it should be, uh, whether it comes to Israel or or other contexts around the world. Brian and Josh, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. While you're at it, check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>